when the Kansas City Chiefs won Super Bowl 54 in 2020, and then uh, Super Bowl 57 in 2023, somewhere between 700,000 and 1 million people lined the streets of Kansas City to celebrate their team winning it all. When the Atlanta Braves won Major League Baseball's World Series in 2021, just over one million fans lined the streets for their championship parade. In fact, local schools actually canceled school that day for the celebration. And, and you could look at it and say, well, it was, you know, because of traffic. It was because they wanted to go. For Super Bowl 53, the New England Patriots fans set a record for Super Bowl parade attendance at 1.5 million fans lining the streets celebrating their team. And uh, th- this is considered the largest Super Bowl parade in history. And keep in mind, this was the sixth Super Bowl win that Patriot fans got to enjoy under the Belichick-Brady regime. I saw John give a fist pump. The Boston Red Sox, their 2013 World Series win was celebrated by 2 million fans who attended the championship parade. But when the Chicago Cubs finally won the World Series in 2016, 108 years after their last World Series win, at least 5 million people lined the streets of Chicago for the World Series parade. Some estimates actually put it closer to 6 million. To put this in perspective, the population of Chicago, which normally sits around 2.5 to 2.7 million, doubled in one day for this championship parade. This is considered the largest championship parade uh, attendance in history. No championship parade has surpassed it, though Argentina's World Cup championship parade in 2022 came close with estimates around 4 million. These celebrations are marked by fans wearing their team's colors, gear, face paint, and so on. If you were, if you watched the football game last night in Kansas City with the Dolphins, there were men in negative 27 degree weather that did not have their shirts on. Fans are crazy. I don't know if you know this or not. They want to celebrate and revel in the glory of their team. And at these championship parades, they celebrate their team's win as their own win. They revel in the glory that their team has conquered and returned victorious. They celebrate in the streets. And they want everyone to know that their team has won. Their team is the best in the world. Their team is number one. I'll be honest, when the Braves won the World Series in 2021, I definitely contemplated calling in sick to the bank and driving down there for the championship parade. I didn't, but I did think about it. And I might have thought about it a lot. Why do we do this? Well, I I mean, I think we enjoy winning. The losing team doesn't get a parade. Also, as a fan, it's fun to identify as part of the team. I am well aware that I contributed very little. Notice I didn't say none. I said very little 
to the Braves World Series win in 2021. However, I definitely stated on a regular basis, and I still do, we won. As a fan, my team's win is my win. And in most cases, teams actually share this sentiment, or at least they say things that make us as fans feel like they share this sentiment. They'll make statements like, well, we couldn't have done this without you coming out and cheering for us each and every game. While we as fans don't actually contribute on the field, we do get to share in the victory. However, this morning, I don't want to spend our time reveling in temporal victories that are here today and gone next season. Instead, I simply want to use the celebration of these temporal victories as a small illustration for a greater celebration of a greater victory. Beloved, this morning as we venture into our Disciplines of Grace series uh, that we consider every January, I want us this morning to think deeply on Jesus' ultimate victory and our celebrative response of proclaiming His victory to a lost and dying world in an effort to provide hope to the nations which God has long promised. In other words, when we leave here today, we should all have face paint that says Jesus, and we should run up and down the streets. I'm kidding, but kind of not. I'd like to invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 28. The Gospel of Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. It is a narrative eyewitness account of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, our God and King. And here we are, we're going to pick up at the very end of Matthew's Gospel. He has detailed for us Jesus' birth at the beginning of His account. Then we see Jesus' earthly ministry as he prepares for his own death. And in fact, he actually tells his disciples regularly that he is going to die. And like many, when they receive tough or difficult news, they live in denial. Now here's the thing. Every time Jesus told his disciples that he was going to die, he also told them that he would rise again. In Matthew's account of Jesus' life and ministry, Jesus predicts His death and resurrection four times. He does this in Matthew 16, verses 21 through 23. Matthew 17, verses 22 through 23. Matthew 10, 17 through 19. And then again, at the beginning of Matthew 26, when He sets the scene for Jesus to institute the Lord's Supper and then to be betrayed by Judas. In Matthew chapter 26 and 27, we are provided the narrative details of Jesus' trial and subsequent execution as He is crucified on the cross. By the time we get to the end of chapter 27, Jesus has died, He has been buried, and guards have been placed at His tomb because the Pharisees remembered what Jesus said while He was alive. Now the pitch that they gave to Pilate was, Uh, We need to do this lest his disciples go and steal him away and then tell people that he has been raised from the dead and the last fraud will be worse than the first. And that's where chapter 27 ends. Jesus has died. He is buried in a tomb. A stone has been placed in front of the tomb to seal it. And the guards are instructed to keep watch every day And every night, 
Now we pick up in Matthew chapter 28. Hear now the word of God. For the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen? Matthew 28, verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, at dawn, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake. For an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has arisen, just as He said. Come and see the place where He lay. Then go quickly and tell His disciples, He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see Him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid, yet filled with joy, and ran to tell His disciples. Suddenly, Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priest had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money telling them, you are to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and we will keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Lord, add to the reading of your word by giving us eyes to see, ears to hear, minds to know, and hearts to understand. Amen. Throughout the month of December, we have considered the theme, missions is the purpose of the incarnation. And during this time, we have prepared to send off one of our own to the Philippines to preach the gospel and plant churches. Last week, we got to commission Jared and Lori Garcia to the Philippines to proclaim the gospel because missions is the purpose of the incarnation. Beloved, if missions is the purpose of of the incarnation, then it is also the result of the resurrection. This morning, I want us to consider from Matthew chapter 28 that the resurrection of Jesus compels us to evangelism by proclaiming His excellencies and victory over sin and death among the nations which includes our everyday relationships. In other words, the promise that the gospel 
would go to the nations includes you telling your children about the gospel with the aim that they would repent of their sins and believe in said gospel. It includes you telling your coworker about the gospel with the aim that they would repent and believe. It includes you telling your neighbor, literally the person who lives next door to you, about the gospel with the goal that they would repent and believe. I can keep going, but I think we get the picture. Evangelism is telling someone the good news of the gospel with the goal that they would believe it. As we consider this spiritual discipline, let us consider how Matthew 28 shapes our understanding of evangelism. Matthew 28 teaches us three things about this discipline. The first is that the proper response to the resurrection is evangelism. The proper response to the resurrection is evangelism. Now, before I prove this to you, I want to offer a huge caveat. The true proper response to the resurrection is worship. That is the true proper response to the resurrection. Jesus has been raised. He has, been, he has conquered sin and death. So worship him. But as we have rehearsed a lot recently, missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is the true result of the resurrection. But because the nations do not worship God as they should, I believe we can contend that the tangible response to the resurrection is indeed evangelism. Telling the good news to those who need to hear it and calling them to believe it. We see this response in Matthew 28. In fact, we see it in a couple of ways throughout this passage. As Matthew contemplates, as Matthew completes the passion narrative for his readers, we are left in suspense following chapter 27. Jesus dies. He's buried. Three days pass. There's a three-day gap between chapter 27 and the beginning of chapter 28. And during this gap, between chapter 27 and 28, Mark's gospel in chapter 14 and John's gospel in chapter 20 fill some details in for us. In Mark 4, chapter 14, we're told that the disciples fled after Jesus was betrayed by Judas. And then in John chapter 20, when Jesus appears to the rest of his disciples following his resurrection, that we are told that they are in hiding for fear that the Jews would come against them. After all, their leader had been murdered. If they could come against Jesus, they could come against his followers. Who is going to stop them from hunting them down? Who is going to stop the Jews from hunting them down for following Jesus? Who at this point in the story is dead. Before we resolve this conflict, let's briefly consider this fact. If Christ is not raised then we are to be pitied. This is actually an argument that the Apostle Paul makes in his first letter to the Corinthian church later in the New Testament. He deals with a wide variety of issues in that letter, and in chapter 15, he deals specifically with the matter of Jesus' resurrection. There were some who were questioning whether Jesus was actually raised from the dead, and so Paul addresses this and says that if Jesus isn't raised, then we have a huge problem. If Christ is not raised, then God is still angry with sinners 
and we are still dead in our sins. This is what the Apostle Paul argues in 1 Corinthians 15, 16 through 19. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hoped in this life only, we are all we are of all people most to be pitied. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, then we are fools and we should be pitied most of all because we have wasted our life. Now, it's interesting here that Paul doesn't say that we're to be pitied because we've believed a lie and therefore there's no God. Paul doesn't just become an atheist if Christ is not raised from the dead. No, the reason that we are to be pitied is because we have believed that we were okay, but if Christ has not been raised, then we're not okay. We are still dead in our sins and God's wrath burns against us. Paul doesn't just throw out belief in God if Jesus is not raised. The issue is that if Jesus isn't raised, then the problem of sin has not been reconciled. If Jesus is not raised, then God's anger against sinners is inescapable. If Christ is not raised, then we have foolishly hoped in a dead Savior. And instead of entering the presence of God, we will remain God's enemies, banished from His presence because we are incapable of righteousness. Now, going back to Matthew's Gospel, if the narrative stops at chapter 27 then we are wasting our time here this morning. But it doesn't. Matthew 28, 1-10 tells us that Jesus has been raised from the dead. Matthew describes for us an earthquake that announced the arrival of an angel who rolled back the stone that, had, that was there to seal the tomb. The guards were so afraid that they fell to the ground as if they had died. The angel speaks to the women, the two Marys who went to the tomb. And the angel tells them, don't be afraid. Jesus has risen just as he said he would. Now go and tell his disciples. On the way to tell his disciples, Jesus meets them on the road. And their instinct is correct. The first thing they do is fall down and worship Jesus. That's the true ultimate response to Jesus' resurrection, worship. But not everyone was worshiping. So Jesus tells the women, just as the angel did, go and tell my brothers. They needed to go and proclaim that Jesus had been raised. Do you see how one plus one equals two here? If worship isn't happening because Jesus has been raised, then it needs to be proclaimed that Jesus has been raised so that worship will follow. You can jump ahead to verses 19 and 20 and see that this line of thinking is reasonable. Following his resurrection, Jesus instructs the disciples to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. The victory has been accomplished. God's wrath no longer burns against those whom he has saved. Jesus stood in the way so that God's wrath would be directed at him and not us. Therefore, since the nations do not yet worship Go and make disciples. 
the proper response, maybe we'd say the word, the tangible response to Jesus' resurrection is evangelism because the nations do not yet worship God as they should. Secondly, Matthew 28 teaches us that the proper response to worldly wisdom is evangelism. The proper response to worldly wisdom is evangelism. Look at what happens in verses 11 through 15. Some of the guard go and tell the chief priest what happened. I think we we get a little bit of this uh, wise men uh, scenario here where we kind of assume there were three wise men when Jesus was born because there were three gifts. We kind of get this idea that there were only two guards at the tomb. When it says that there's the guard, this is a battalion of men that were stationed at the tomb uh, and they would be rotating. So they had men there every day and every night. These are highly trained guards. Okay, Don't don't think of this as just two guys standing there uh, on a smoke break. Right. These are these are highly trained assassins. In the Roman guard. They are there to kill anyone that would try to open up this tomb. So just keep that in mind as we think about this scene. So some of the guard, they go to tell the chief priest what happened. So the chief priest meet with the other religious leaders and they devise a plan to construct a story that Jesus didn't come back to life. But instead, his disciples stole his body so that it appeared like he rose from the dead. The religious leaders then paid the guard a lot of money to tell this story. Again, you have to realize the guard, uh, they're, they're probably pretty hesitant to say that the heist of the century was pulled off, that, that 11 uh, regular average Joe guys could steal a dead body from under the nose of highly trained assassins. Do you see how this story is a little wild? And how if you're one of the guard, you're probably like, that's not what happened at all. There was an earthquake, there was an angel, and I basically died for five minutes. That that might seem kind of crazy too, but the reality is it wasn't my fault is what I'm trying to tell you. I didn't fall asleep. So what did they do? The religious leaders said, we're going to pay you a lot of money so that you never have to work for the guard again. You can retire and live high on the hog. And then if this comes to the governor, we're going to make sure that you don't get in, in trouble. Essentially, we're going to pay you off. You're going to sign an NDA and you're not going to talk to anyone ever again. So the religious leaders, they pay the members of the guard, they pay them a large sum of money, they promise they won't get in trouble, and then we're told that this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Beloved, here's something that we need to understand. The resurrection of Jesus is offensive. The resurrection of Jesus is offensive. Here's why. To a Christian, the gospel is life. When we hear the good news of Jesus, we say, rejoice, praise be to God, for he has done great things. But to an unbeliever, to an unbelieving world, someone who remains an enemy of God, it steps on their toes and it offends them as foolishness. First Corinthians chapter one, verse 18 actually tells us that the message of the cross 
is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. But why does it offend? Since Jesus has been raised, we don't have to remain dead in our sins as an enemy of God. This is good news. But it is offensive to those who are perishing because it means that they are without excuse. Because if if Christ hasn't been raised, then we might as well just live as sinful and carnally as we desire. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. If Christ isn't raised, we have no hope. So do whatever makes you happy, because we're all going to hell. But if Christ has been raised, there is no excuse. We must worship Him and live according to His word. If Christ is raised then the religious leaders in Matthew 28 had no excuse for their actions and they needed to give up their power and authority that they had abused for their own advancement. They couldn't have that. So they went to great lengths to lie and spread falsehoods. Beloved, it's the same today. You see, the gospel really is offensive. It confronts us in our sin and it leaves us without excuse. So just like the religious leaders, many today try to explain away the resurrection of Jesus so that they don't have to deal with it when they're confronted by it. That's what the religious leaders in Matthew 28 did. Instead of, well, maybe Jesus really has been raised. No, let's just pay off the guard. This is much easier than having to deal with this because I don't want to lose my power. I, I, I like being in control. I like being in charge. I like being able to tell people to do whatever I want. And if Jesus is raised, his whole message was going against that. The truth is, everyone is going to have to face this reality at one point or another. So what is the proper response to falsehood like this? What is the proper response to false teaching, to worldly wisdom, to a, to a godless secularism? Make disciples of all nations. The gospel is the beginning of life and it is the end of death for those who believe it. Do you want to see an end to wickedness? Do you want to see a, an end to wickedness like abortion? Do you want to see an end to hunger? Do you want to see an end to, to broken families? then seek the advancement of the kingdom of God by proclaiming the gospel. Make disciples. We sang this refrain last week, do you feel the world is broken? We do. Do you want to see an end to the brokenness of this world? We do. The gospel is that end. The gospel is that end. Beloved, the proper response to any form of worldly wisdom, to any form of falsehood, is simply the truth of the gospel. So proclaim it. Thirdly, proper obedience to Jesus' command is evangelism. Proper obedience to Jesus' command is evangelism. Now we come to the final verses of Matthew's gospel. The disciples went to Galilee, as Jesus said, and what did they do? Again, we see, we, see the first, we see the true, proper response. They worship Him. Now, some doubt, but we know from the other Gospel accounts that Jesus quickly quelled those doubts. So they worship Jesus. Again, worship is the ultimate response to the resurrected Jesus. But then, how does Jesus instruct them? 
He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. All authority has been given to Jesus as the resurrected king because he has been raised. All authority is his and he has the kingly authority to commission his subjects as he pleases. And his commission is make disciples. Make disciples. Now, it's important to note, he doesn't say make converts. He doesn't say make sure people pray this prayer. He doesn't say make sure they fill out a connect card that says I'm a Christian. He says make disciples of all nations, baptize them, and teach them to observe all I have commanded you. Beloved, it's important to note that making disciples is not solely evangelism, but it certainly isn't less than evangelism. People can't be discipled until they believe the gospel, and they won't believe the gospel until they are told to believe the gospel. That's what Romans chapter 10 tells us. Romans chapter 10 verses 13 through 17 says this, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him who they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. If the ultimate response to a resurrected Jesus is worship, and yet the nations don't worship as they should, then we should long for and endeavor to see the nations worship the risen Christ. How is that accomplished? We have to tell people the gospel. This means that our response to the resurrected Jesus is telling others about the resurrected Jesus which is what Jesus instructed and compelled his disciples to do and continues to instruct and compel us to do even today. In order for us to obey this great commission that Jesus gave his disciples, we must take evangelism seriously. We must take the call to tell others about Jesus seriously. Now, where does this leave us? I think it leaves us with two questions, with one question. There's a couple of answers. The question is this, what is evangelism? So I've just said, we just spent a few minutes saying, to evangelize, well, what is evangelism? I'm going to give you three answers to to that question, what is evangelism? Number one, evangelism is celebration. Evangelism is celebration. The king has conquered, he has won, and we are partakers in his victory. Evangelism is the championship parade. Evangelism is the proclamation that Jesus has conquered and we are claiming his victory as our own and we want to tell everyone. Jesus has won. Y'all, I was really excited when the Braves won the World Series in 2021. I wanted to tell everybody. That is so 
minuscule and insignificant when we consider the fact that Jesus has conquered sin and death. That I get to stand before God made righteous because of Jesus. And yet we'll fill the streets for a baseball team that didn't win the World Series the next year. As we celebrate the victory, we tell others about our victorious King. And about what He has done to secure the victory. Namely, He died in our place and He rose again. He did what no one else could do. When we tell others about Jesus, when we call sinners to repent and believe the Gospel, we are celebrating what Jesus has done, which is of course defined in Romans 4.25. We are celebrating His death on the cross that paid the price for our sins, and then we are celebrating His resurrection that secured our justification before God. Again, if Jesus isn't raised, we are wasting our time because we are all going to hell. Let that sit on us a little bit. But because Jesus is raised, we get to worship. We can come here this morning, we can sing loudly, we can, we can pray together, we can, we can encourage one another in songs, hymns, and spiritual songs. We can say amen to His Word because He is raised. Because instead of leaving us dead in our trespasses and sins, God did something about it. If five million people will line the streets to celebrate the Cubs winning the World Series, how much more? We, who have been purchased by Jesus' very own blood, eagerly, willingly, expectantly fill the proverbial streets with celebration, proclaiming the death and resurrection of our King. We have to proclaim it to those who are perishing. Beloved, when you rehearse the Gospel with your children during family worship so that they would repent and believe, you are celebrating the resurrected King. When you comfort a suffering coworker with the good news of the gospel and call them to repent and believe, you are celebrating the resurrected king. Evangelism is a celebration. We are proclaiming that Jesus has been raised and we are no longer dead in our sins. We are proclaiming that God keeps his promises and it is fulfilled in Christ. Number two. So evangelism is celebration. Number two, evangelism is obedience. Evangelism is obedience. If you're tempted to ask the question, why should I share the gospel? The answer is because Jesus said so. He commands it. He, and, and, and not only does He command it, He has the authority to command it. He has the right to command it as the resurrected King. The King has commanded His people And the only option is obedience. On the front of your order of worship, there's a quote from Mark Dever on this very matter. This is what he has to say. Quote, the Christian call to evangelism is a call not simply to persuade people to make decisions, but rather to proclaim to them the good news of salvation in Christ, to call them to repentance, and to give God the glory for regeneration and conversion. We don't fail in our evangelism 
if we faithfully present the gospel and yet the person is not converted. We fail only if we don't faithfully present the gospel at all, end quote. Why should we pray? Why should we love our neighbor as ourself? Why should we share the gospel with an unbeliever? Why should we gather with, with, with the body of Christ on Sunday morning to worship? Because Jesus said so. And if that statement alone doesn't convince you, then I'm not sure you understand that Jesus is in charge, not you. Jesus said so. It, you know, beloved, it really is okay to say the Bible tells me so. We live in a, in a day and age where we, we want to kind of belittle the Bible. We want to we lower it. We want to say, well, is that really? No. If the Bible says it, we believe it. If Jesus commands it, we obey it. Evangelism is obedience. If we don't share the gospel, if we're not proclaiming the gospel, if we're not proclaiming a, a, a resurrected Savior to everyone that we can, we are disobeying God. Number three. Evangelism is a means by which Jesus makes all things new. Evangelism is a means by which Jesus makes all things new. We talked about this two weeks ago. Jesus is king. He rules now. He's making all things new now. And he invites and uses his redeemed people to share in his sovereign recreation work. Beloved, God is going to save people. Will he do it through you or will he do it in spite of you? You see, if we disobey God's command for evangelism, that doesn't mean that the gospel is going to fail and God isn't going to, to save people. It just means that you're not really good at obeying Jesus. God is going to save people. That's not up for debate. The question is, are you going to obey him? And is God going to use you for his glory and his might as people repent and believe in Jesus? Jesus is the king who makes all things new. And Jesus makes all things new through his gospel. When you share the gospel, when you tell someone the good news that Jesus died, was buried, and was raised to life again so that we could be reconciled to God, you get to participate in the king making all things new. Now, if this seems like a daunting task, it is. It should feel like a daunting task. Which is why we need to remember that evangelism is not about convincing people to become Christians. That's the end of it, yes. Evangelism is our celebratory obedience to King Jesus where we proclaim the gospel and we call unbelievers to repent and believe. So if we're all on the same page... I think this leaves us with two questions of application. First, where do I start? Or maybe, who should I be evangelizing? Who should I share the gospel with? I think that sometimes Christians tend to overreact and find themselves with an evangelistic paralysis because either they simply don't know where to start and they get overwhelmed by all the lost people in their life and they just freeze. Right? Well, I can't, I can't save everyone, so I'm just not going to talk to anybody. We make excuses sometimes and we say, uh, I don't know enough lost people or I don't have the gift of evangelism. 
just to address some of these objections, if you're a Christian, you have the gift of salvation, so you are to make disciples. I'm not going to lie and say that it's not true that some are better than others. There are some who are naturally gifted in evangelism. Absolutely. That's great. There are some that are naturally gifted in hospitality. Praise God. That doesn't give you an excuse to not be hospitable. There, there are some who are maybe more naturally prone to patience. Well, I don't have that gift, so I can just yell at my kids and not be patient with anybody. No! If you're a Christian, you have the gift of salvation, you have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you, so make disciples. Secondly, don't overthink it. Who do you know that isn't a Christian? Who do you know in your life that you have a close relationship with where you can speak into their life? Remember, so God does the saving. It is not your job to save everyone. It's not your job to save anyone. That's Jesus' job. Your job is to be obedient and celebrate the resurrected Jesus. So who should you share the gospel with? Well, I think the answer to the question is a question. Who has God placed in your life that doesn't believe the gospel? Let's start small. Your children. If you're a parent, I don't know if you know this or not. Moms, you gave birth to sinners. I'm sure you became very aware, if not early, by, by at least age two. If you're a parent in this room, your home is a mission field. You have children that need to repent and believe in the gospel. What about your spouse? Maybe you're here today. You are on your own. Your spouse is at home. They don't want to come to church. What about your extended family? Moms, dads, uncles, your college roommate that calls you once or twice a year and you meet up for coffee. What about your golf buddy? What about the neighbor you walk with twice a week? Who do you know in your life that doesn't know Jesus? That is who you should be sharing the gospel with. Beloved, there are certainly moments when God opens the, we'll call them the one-time doors to share the gospel with an unbeliever you've never met before. But I think the normal rhythm of conversion is where a Christian tells someone they already have some sort of previous relationship with about Jesus. Look around you. When you throughout your life, who doesn't believe? Beloved, my goal in this sermon is not to burden you with the idea that you have to tell every single person you ever talk to every single day about Jesus. And maybe that sounds counterintuitive. My goal is to compel us to be obedient and celebrate the resurrected King so that when you lay your head down at night on the pillow, the question isn't how many people did I save? The question is, was I obedient to Jesus? Can I with a clear conscience go to sleep tonight because I took the opportunity that the Lord gave me, I obeyed Him, and I celebrated my resurrected King in front of an unbeliever. I understand that it can be nerve-wracking. I understand that you may feel uneducated and underprepared. I feel that way all the time. I still, I remember, this isn't in the manuscript, so maybe this is a train wreck, but I remember I have an unbelieving family member who before they died, a couple of years before they died, all throughout my life I tried to share the gospel with this person. And I remember, I, I was a paid pastor at this point, keep in mind. 
And I'm sitting on the couch with this unbelieving family member who I know is on death's door in a way of speaking. And my heart is like pounding out my chest. I, 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 I'll confess, I did not want to open my mouth. But if Jesus really is who he says he is, then we cannot help but speak about the things that we have seen and heard. That's what Peter and John, who were uneducated followers of Jesus, they, they were fishermen. They, they, they weren't uh, the most eloquent speakers. They, they didn't have PhDs from Bob Jones or North Greenville or Furman. They, they were just average, regular guys. And they said that we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. Beloved, we have encountered the resurrected Jesus What is stopping us? Our second question of application is simply this. How do I know if I've indeed evangelized? How do I know if I've told someone the gospel? A couple of things. Just because you told someone your testimony does not mean that you have evangelized. Your testimony is not the gospel. It can be a helpful tool in your evangelistic toolbox in proclaiming the excellencies of Jesus and telling someone what He has done in your life. But don't confuse your testimony with calling sinners to repent. Remember that. It's also not handing out a gospel tract to someone you randomly see at the store. Again, helpful tool. I'm not saying anything negative about it. I'm just saying let's not confuse a tool with actually doing the job. Just because I have a hammer doesn't mean I've built something. I probably haven't built something. Let's be honest. Praying for someone or telling someone, I'll pray for you, is not evangelism. Building houses in third world countries is not evangelism. Feeding the homeless is not evangelism. Inviting someone to church is not evangelism. These these are not bad things. Again, helpful tools in our evangelism toolbox that can help aid our proclamation of the gospel. But how do I know if I've shared the gospel with someone? In order to share the gospel, this is not original to me, you must tell someone the truth about God. God is the creator of all things. He is perfectly holy. He is worthy of all worship. And He will punish sin. You have to tell uh, people the truth about man. All people are sinful by nature. We We are... we are, by nature, we are alienated from God, hostile to God, and subject to the wrath of God. We have to tell people the truth about Christ, that Jesus Christ, who is fully God and fully man, lived a sinless life, died on the cross to bear God's wrath in the place of all who would believe in Him and rose from the grave in order to give His people eternal life. And then finally, we must tell people the truth about our response to God. God calls everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and trust in Christ in order to be saved. Now, practically speaking, you may get to share the whole gospel with someone all at once. That may be a part of a conversation. It also may be a growing conversation over a period of time where over the course of a series of conversations, you get to cover these four points. God, man, Christ, response. To share the gospel is to tell someone the truth about God, the truth about man and our current state of sin, about Christ and His 
death, burial, and resurrection, and about the response that God calls us to. So as we journey into a new year, let us endeavor as Christians, as a, as a body of believers in covenant with each other, let us endeavor to be joyfully and obediently evangelistic. Let us with joyful celebration call sinners to repent and believe in Jesus alone for salvation. That's what we must do. And, and let's start simple. Tonight, parents, when you're with your children, proclaim the excellencies of Christ. Tomorrow, when you go to work, or maybe it's Tuesday if you have the day off tomorrow, when you go to work, when you're having that conversation with the coworker that you talk to each and every day, proclaim the excellencies of Christ. He is risen. Let us call sinners to repent and believe. And let us call each other to be obedient and celebrate what Christ has done because He alone can rescue and He alone can save. Because He alone has conquered sin and death. Jesus lives. Because He lives, He alone is worthy of worship and He alone must be worshipped. Therefore, until all the nations worship God as they should, and that includes your neighbor who lives right behind you, until all the nations worship, let us call our neighbors, our co-workers, our family. Let us, let, let us plant churches in the Philippines. Let's, let's, let, let, let's pray that God will send more out from our number so that Jesus will be magnified and we together behold our resurrected King.